Hi, this is Dr. Richard Miller, host of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Welcome to Entheo Nation with Lana Liana. Welcome to Entheo Nation, where we feature visionaries who are pioneering the cutting edge of awakening. Psychedelic science, modern shamanism, neuroscience, new paradigm lifestyles. Get ready to harness the power of visionary states and forge reality into your wildest dreams. visionary people. This is Lorna. Before we hop into our intriguing interview with Dr. Richard Miller, who's going to share with us the ludicrous politics getting in the way of serious scientific research of psychedelic drugs, I want to share with you an epic moment in the world of neuroscience. Remember those commercials that would show you a picture of a brain? And then you'd see a caption that said, this is your brain. And in the next photo, they'd line them up side by side. They would be a blackened frying pan with some sunny side-up eggs, and it would say, this is your brain on drugs. Well, the real version of that has been revealed. A bunch of volunteers agreed to trip in the name of science. They injected, not dropped, but injected LSD, and allowed scientists to take scans of their brains. And the findings were remarkable. LSD was found to dramatically increase activity and connectivity in the brain, leading researchers to speculate that this is what leads some users to report visual hallucinations and feelings of oneness with the universe. According to David Nutt, gotta love the name, the government's former drugs advisor, professor of neuropsychopharmacology at Imperial College, London, and senior researcher on the study, said neuroscientists had waited 50 years for this moment. This is to neuroscience what the Higgs boson was to particle physics, he said. We didn't know how these profound effects were produced. It was too difficult to do. Scientists were either scared or couldn't be bothered to overcome the enormous hurdles to get this done. What I love the most about this study is that there's a really cool photo comparison of the activity of a normal brain and your brain on drugs. Under the influence of LSD, the brain networks that deal with vision, attention, movement, and hearing became far more connected, leading to what looked like a quote-unquote more unified brain. I must admit I kind of like the image of the brain on LSD, all lit up with pretty shades of orange. Can I have that one, please? Check out the story along with Dr. Richard Miller's interview show notes at entheonation.com slash two. If you love stories like this, then join our tribe and get consciousness-raising content delivered straight to your inbox. Simply text ENTHEONATION, that's E-N-T-H-E-O-N-A-T-I-O-N, to the number 44222, and reply to the SMS with your best email address to receive a copy of this episode transcript and much, much more. Now on to the show. Hello, visionary tribe of Entheo Nation. This is Lorna Liana, your host for today. And I am here with a man who has, in a way, been a, both a mentor and guide to me somewhat indirectly. Dr. Richard Miller is the founder and caretaker of Willibur Hot Springs Sanctuary for the Self, which is a place that I spend an awful lot of time at up in Northern California. Richard is also the host of the radio program Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, and he's the founder and and chief clinician of Coke Enders Alcohol and Drug Program. Now, Richard has been a psychedelic researcher for many years, and he's going to share with us some of his insights on the history and politics of psychedelic research. So thank you so much for joining us today, Richard. Thank you for having me on your program, Lana. So I'd love to find out more about who you are and how you became a psychedelic research and the host of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which includes one of the longest-running series about psychedelics. 
Well, I started uh, doing radio in the 80s in San Francisco, and uh, I f just felt a calling to uh, get word out to the public on topics that I didn't think were really getting their just due by the mainstream media. And uh, one of these topics, amongst many, uh, is the topic of, uh, of psychedelic medicine. Uh, other topics include the uh, socioeconomic stratification that's been going on in this country and around the world, and of course, the main issues and the, the main stains on the character of the United States, um, the slavery issue, women's rights, uh, of, of course, um, and the fact that women just uh, didn't get the vote until the, uh, until the 20th uh, century, and, and the poor. And so that's how the, uh, the program began. And then when I, uh, I took a break for a while and then started the program Mind, Body, Health and Politics up again about 10 years ago on a uh, national public radio affiliate, KZYX in Mendocino County. So uh, I'm curious to know uh, what really kind of drives you around the topic of psychedelic research. Did um, psychedelics uh, influence you uh, in your profession or in your personal life? Well, when I was in graduate school uh, getting my doctorate, uh, Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert were fired from, uh, from Harvard. Uh, and then I went on to teach at the University of Michigan and uh, there was a lot of uproar in the academic community about why these two um, prominent uh, researchers were fired uh, from a very significant institute for their research with this particular material that many of us had never heard of before and knew very little about. They were doing uh, research with uh, LSD and psilocybin in prisons in hope of uh, creating a beneficial medicine for these people, and they were fired. And that became uh, a great cause celeb, as we all know, and uh, because of the, of the unfortunate firing of these two academicians, uh, the, the entire field of psychedelic medicine and psychedelic research got both turned upside down and suppressed because Tim Timothy Leary went on to become a cheerleader for what some people considered to be uh, indiscriminate use of LSD. LSD was scheduled and made illegal by the United States government uh, because of its widespread use and the fear of the government of what would happen with these tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or as it turns out millions of people experimenting with LSD. So the government suppressed not only uh, the, the drug itself, but they suppressed research of the drug. And here I was, a psychologist teaching at the University of Michigan, scratching my head, you know, and saying, what's going on here that our government is suddenly suppressing research into a chemical? What is this about? That's how my interest began, and I think that's how the interest of a lot of us began. Prior to it becoming illegal, because of what happened with Timothy Leary and Richard Alpert, Many of us psychologists tried LSD while it was legal because we wanted to know what is it that these men got fired for. And we had some quite remarkable experiences, um, experiences that changed many of our lives. Uh, and so that was the beginning of my interest in the topic. And, um, and, and it continued thereafter. Wow, you know, I kind of wish that the people banning these substances would actually try them like uh, uh, they did in Brazil. So it was, gosh, I'm not so um, clear about the exact dates, but I think sometime in the 80s, maybe, I could be wrong, there was a uh, investigative team set, uh, that was sent out to look into the use of ayahuasca with the intention of actually banning it. And uh, they ended up in this daime community, I believe, and uh, at which case, like, the 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 founders and the you know the the people that were leading the the works basically said hey you're trying to ban something that you know nothing about so why don't you join us in this ceremony and see for yourself what it's about first and then you know make your decisions so they had apparently this team had the experience and uh, determined that it was not harmful and you know a detriment to society in fact that community had overall better education and better health and the people were happier more productive than in the 
adjacent communities. So that paved the way for ayahuasca to be protected in Brazil. So I'm curious to know, why do you think the authorities were so afraid of LSD that they decided to uh, fire these individuals and then make it Schedule 1? To answer that question, one really has to go back to the founding fathers, because this is where the argument really began. Dr. Benjamin Rush, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, considered by many the father of modern psychiatry, and certainly the most prominent physician of his time, took an extremely active role in organizing our country against the use of alcohol. And he wrote articles on it, and he lectured on it, and his work became part of, in the 1780s and 90s, what eventually in the 19th, uh, 20th century became the Women's Christian Temperance Union, actually in the late 19th century, and led to prohibition in this country way over a hundred years after uh, uh, Rush got into this argument. So there has been a morality play going on in our country with regard to mind-altering substances right from the beginning of our country, right from the founding. It's about, is, does a person have the right to alter their own consciousness? And if they do under, alter their own consciousness, under what circumstances are they allowed to do so? In other words, the difference between a person consistently getting drunk in their own home and a person consistently getting drunk in public or a person getting drunk in the modern era in a vehicle. Very different experiences and different arguments both ways. So it became both an issue of pragmatism in terms of possible danger, but it had as its basis a lot of Christian morality about altering the mind. And that's the beginning of it. And you can trace the development of that argument right up through to the present day. So what's really interesting for me is that, um, you know, and, and many of, uh, you know, there's a lot of information that's available on, for example, how um, bad alcohol can be for your health. And in fact, you know, it does have a, a high, considerably higher death rate than psychedelics and is considerably more addictive than, you know, many psychedelic um, substances. So... You know, with the danger aspect uh, to one's health is not so much um, uh, evident in um, in some of these uh, psychedelic um, uh, uh, drugs. And so, how is it that some of these arguments still continue? Well, that's a, that's a great observation, <laughs> Lana. Because if we use the the example of nicotine, it's even more dramatic. Here's a mind altering substance that's killing approximately 1,000 people a day. We don't have 1,000 people in 10 years that we know of dying from something like LSD or MDMA. Nowhere near that. And yes, we do have significant numbers dying in various areas of the country, uh, the western region of the United States even more than other areas, by the way, according to some latest data I saw. But nicotine is the one to use. Here's a mind-altering substance that kills 1,000 people a day, close to 400,000 people a year, totally legal, can, you can buy it anywhere, and it's, it's legal in counties, it's legal in states, and it's legal federally. No, there's no opposition to it. What there are is warnings. On the other end of the continuum, you have something like marijuana, which we have hardly any incidents whatsoever of people being admitted to emergency rooms uh, around the country uh, because of the use of marijuana, and people are doing significant amount of, of time in jail, families are ruined, lives are disrupted. Uh, when I was teaching at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, uh, a, a man named John Sinclair uh, was put in jail for 10 years for two marijuana cigarettes. It was on the front page of the, uh, of the college newspaper. 10 years for two cigarettes. So there, there isn't a great deal of rationale to this. There's a lot of emotion. There's not a great deal of science 
science would say the one that does the most harm might be the one that you would want to most suppress. <laughs> and you'd certainly want to do a lot of research about that. And you'd also want to do a lot of research about the ones that do the least harm. But that's not what's going on in this country. That's not what has been going on in this country for decades and decades. The re research into psychedelic medicine has pretty much been suppressed by the United States government for over 50 years. There are certain exceptions. I've interviewed some of the exceptional scientists on my radio program, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, uh, but they are exceptions. And it's a very unfortunate situation. Huh, that is really intriguing. So, uh, yeah, especially when you consider deaths between, you know, nicotine use and LSD. So, and then like LSD is like schedule one. So what do you think the real fear factor is there? I mean, I would like to suggest that perhaps the authorities are terrified of uh uh, how LSD tends to open up the possibilities in our mind and cause us to see what are actually complete fabrications and lies, especially by government propaganda machines, and therefore, you know, a population that's a little more open and aware and uh, become a lot less uh, easy to control and make part of the industrial economic machine, so to speak. So I'd love to know what your theories are. Well, certainly that is one of the many theories as to why the suppression. But I made a comment a moment ago about the fact that it was it's unfortunate that this information and scientific research has been suppressed. And I want to say why I think it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate for two reasons. One, I don't think we want to be a society in which any kind of research by highly qualified people at the university level, who do not have an agenda, who are not being sponsored by some industry or pharmaceutical company, but are strictly doing scientific research in order to get information to the public. I don't think research into anything ought to be suppressed. And so to take any research, particularly medicine, potential medicine that could be used for good, and to suppress it is simply unacceptable. And that, the second half of the un unfortunate part is that we are not learning which, if any, of these psychedelics is potentially very beneficial to human health. For example, now that the Israelis are doing research into medicinal marijuana, and now that a few American scientists are being allowed to do research into medical marijuana, we're starting to understand that this, this vegetable that comes out of the ground has serious potential medicinal effects. For example, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, arguably one of the best known physicians in this country because of his place on cable news network CNN, recently completely reversed his position, which was anti-marijuana. And he did two documentaries on marijuana. One of the major reasons he reversed his position is because he came upon, through his contacts, a family who moved to Colorado in order to get marijuana for their neonate who was suffering somewhere between 50 and 100 convulsions a week. They were unable to get medicinal marijuana in the state where they lived, and so they moved to Colorado where it was legal because they were desperate. They had tried every medicine known to Western medicine on this neonate, and nothing at all worked. The first administration of cannabidiol, CBD, on this neonate decreased the convulsions to one or two a week, from 50 or 100 a week, and Dr. Gupta witnessed that. When he saw that, his head was turned around, and then he started to do more investigation into the medicinal benefits of marijuana. That's when he then went to Israel, and he interviewed people there who claimed to have cancer cures. We don't have all the answers, and I'm not claiming that marijuana or any of these psychedelics is a panacea, but what I am saying is we owe it to ourselves as a people to do research into these various medicines, these various herbs, 
these various concoctions, some of which come from the ground, some of which are made in laboratories, we owe it to ourselves to find out, are they beneficial to our health? And if so, to what extent? We also owe it to ourselves to find out if there are side effects, if there are negative effects, as we would with any medicine, so that we can then individually make the decision in terms of risk-reward ratio. Is the reward that I might get, now that I know what the reward is from this medicine, worth the potential risk, now that I know what the risks are? This is a rational way to look at potential medicines. We are not able to do that until we have scientific research, and that's what is so important. That's what we have to move forward and get done. So what are some of the promising modern-day psychedelics with regards to, you know, therapeutic applications? Like, um, I've heard of um, uh, MDMA for PTSD, for example. So in your research, you know, what of the, which of the modern-day psychedelics seem to hold the most promise for, um, for healing, for therapeutic treatment of, um, you know, wide-ranging disorders? Well, it's a great question. And it's also a difficult one, because you're saying, which has the most promise? They may all have the most promise. We simply don't know, because we haven't been allowed to know. It could be, as you say, that MDMA has the most promise with PTSD, because we have the studies going on in Israel. Dr. Phil Wolfson in California just got a license recently to do an MDMA study, and Dr. Michael Mithoffer has been doing an MDMA study with PTSD in the Carolinas. However, part of the reason that we think that MDMA can be beneficial with PTSD is because PTSD is what has been studied because it was seen by the scientists as being something that the government might allow research on. But it could be that MDMA is also beneficial for bipolar disorder, or it might be beneficial for depression. But we don't know until that research is done, and it needs to be done. Back when LSD was legal, there was research into the use of LSD with alcoholism. The English did that research, and some of it was done in Canada by Humphrey and Osmond. Yes, even uh, I think it was Bob or Bill, one of the founders of uh, AA, advocated the use of LST while it was legal, of course, for the treatment of alcoholism. But we don't really know because we don't have double-blind studies. We don't have scientific studies. The potential is there, but we need to learn about it. Again, marijuana has be, is being used. Uh, some people claim major cancer uh, uh, cures or remissions, prostate cancer, for example. There's a cure going around called the Simpson cure, where people take uh, marijuana for 90 days in a row. Dr. William Courtney, who's a national expert, uh, whom I've interviewed on my program, by the way, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, who is a, a national expert and an advocate for non-psychoactive, non-psychoactive marijuana, cannabidiol, CBD, as a curative. He advocates making it into a drink. He says that when you don't heat the vegetable, it is not psychoactive. So if you take the leaves, put them in a blender and drink them, you get a medicinal effect without getting a psychoactive effect. This has huge potential for the public, many of whom don't want to walk around altered by a psychedelic medicine. They don't want to be walking around altered by any medicine, legal or illegal, right? They just want to be regular. However, if they've got some kind of an illness, they'd like any cure that's going to work, whether it's legal or illegal, unfortunately. So, again, the answer to your question, which is the best? Lorna, unfortunately, they all have big potential. We don't know the answer. My own suspicion is we're going to find out that each of them has its place in the pharmacopoeia of medicines, and each will have its place with regard to a specific illness, but we have yet to find that out. I hope I'm around long enough to find out. Mm, yeah, I personally think that the um, the use of MDMA would be incredible for couples therapy. Uh. <laughs> well, that's where we began. While MDMA was legal, Lorna, that's exactly what we used it for. As the as the entheogen that it is, as the heart opener that it is, 
We used it in the early 80s uh, in couples therapy until it was scheduled and it was used very effectively. And there is some research back from those days on the use of MDMA with couples therapy. So uh, interesting that you mentioned that. It's right on the mark. But again, we're not allowed to at the present time. Hmm. Do we know of any negative side effects to using MDMA? Because I, I remember, you know, when I was uh, in college, there was some type of rumor that it makes like, you know, holes in your brain and it drains your spinal fluid. Do we do we know like, you know, what it actually does to people? Because I, um, you know, I know folks that have been working with it for quite some time and they seem just fine. <laughs> well, unfortunately, there was a researcher at Johns Hopkins University, Dr. Riccardi, who went on a tear with a research uh, protocol and uh, showing slides of brain damage as a result of MDMA use. And it scared Congress. And it was in part a reaction to Riccardi's research that got MDMA scheduled. And it was in part a reaction to Riccardi's research that led to Congress suppressing research on MDMA. As it turned out, Riccardi was not using MDMA in his research. He was using methamphetamine. And when it was discovered, the journal, the peer-reviewed journal that he had published in, published a retraction. And Congress was informed about the retraction but it had no effect on them whatsoever because the fear factor had already shot through their emotional state and through their intellectual state, and there was no turning back. And, and anyone who's listening to this can check out what I'm saying. Riccardi's research was withdrawn from the literature, and the journal had to make a retraction and admission. It was a major embarrassment, and it was an embarrassment to Johns Hopkins University, but that's how that began. So we don't, we, in terms of the answer to your question, there is no research on record at this time of brain damage coming from or spinal fluid damage as a function of using MDMA. Uh, but I, that's the genesis of where the, of where the fear came from. Uh, the same is true for LSD. Uh, back in the 60s, there were these claims that people would take LSD and look at the sun until their eyes burned out. Uh, Art Linkletter, the famous man on television, claimed that his daughter took LSD and jumped off the roof of a building. There is no evidence that LSD uh, creates these kind of events. That's not to say that a person under the influence of LSD might not jump off a building, but people jump off buildings when they're not off the, under the influence of LSD. But uh, LSD is not the causer of it. And we certainly, by using uh, admissions to emergency rooms, uh, in the United States as an indicator have very little uh, indication of that kind of danger, of a danger, serious danger to the public from LSD because it's on record that 23 million people in the United States have already uh, experienced LSD and approximately five to 700,000 more are adding to that number every single year. If it was a dangerous drug, we would be seeing these folks in the emergency rooms, just like when we had the last cocaine epidemic, which I was involved in treating. Uh, we saw the admissions to emergency rooms from using cocaine all over the country. And you can't help it. When a drug is uh, dangerous in that way, we see the results very quickly. When a drug is not dangerous in that way, we also see the lack of admissions in the same way. In the case of MDMA, I want to point out as well that MDMA, as well as being used uh, psychotherapeutically in couples work, now the research on PTSD, it's well known that MDMA under the name ecstasy is used by millions of people at raves all over the world. And we are not seeing uh, people being, leaving these raves and being uh, sent to the emergency rooms in droves. It simply isn't happening. Have there been incidents at these raves? Yes. Have we been able to ascertain what caused the incidents? Yes, it's overheating. When people take MDMA and they dance for hours in a row and they don't <laughs> hydrate. And they and wear they, fur outfits. And they wear furry <laughs> outfits like they're at, uh, at Burning Man. 
That doesn't work. You lose too much water, and the combination of the uh, increased uh, blood pressure and heart rate from the MDMA and the lack of hydration and the dehydration has caused a few fatalities, relatively few, given the amount of sweat that's gone the floors of these rave places. <laughs> wow. So, um, you know, it's interesting. I always see in the mainstream media just lumping LSD and, uh, you know, mushrooms and MDMA and a whole slew of other psychedelic and entheogenic um, drugs in with cocaine and methamphetamine and heroin and all these things, all these drugs that actually have really debilitating uh, effects on the minds and bodies of, of the addicts. So, you know, uh, since you do work with addicts, I, I'm wondering whether you might be able to provide some insight as to the differences between these two classes and how one might be effective in actually um, uh, healing addiction of the others. Well, co cocaine was originally thought by Freud to be a, a medicine to use for depression. In fact, he sent a, a bunch of uh, cocaine to his uh, fiance, Minna Bernays, and, and uh, suggested that she start using it and many of uh, the people in Dr. Freud's inner circle were using uh, uh, cocaine until one of their group uh, came down with what many of us are quite familiar with is something called cocaine psychosis, where you start to scratch uh, the, your skin off your hands because you think you see bugs under the skin, and uh, that can develop and develop and develop. And uh, soon after... Um, uh, I think his name was Dr. Wilhelm Fleischer, who got the uh, cocaine psychosis. And so, so Freud uh, uh, realized, and so did his colleagues, that this, uh, this drug was not a drug for psychotherapy because, again, in the risk-reward ratio, there might be somewhat of a reward, improve mood for a short period of time, but the risk, psychosis, or major depression following the elation was not worth the reward. So that's not a good medicine. If the medicine does more harm than it does good, that's the definition of not a good medicine. Um, another uh, scientist, a famous one uh, here in the East Coast uh, named Halstead, started using cocaine as an anesthetic and a nerve blocker. Freud, being originally an ophthalmologist, also used cocaine as an anesthetic, and, it thought it, and they thought at times it might have had anesthesia uh, benefits. Halstead himself became a cocaine addict, and his, and his colleagues had to help him. Well, when you have things like that happening, uh, you realize that, the again, the risks are not worth the reward. The, the, uh, the dangers of the medicine outweigh the benefits of the medicine. Uh, we have that going on nowadays as an analogy in certain cancer medicines, when it's very close between the risk and the reward. You might be able to prolong life by a small number of months, but the what the person has to go through with the chemotherapy is questionable in terms of whether the benefit of that few more months is worth what these people have to go through. Heroin is also an anesthetic, but it's highly addictive and we have much better anesthetics, so we don't need to use it. There were times when, if that's all we had, you know, you would use it just like alcohol as an anesthetic. And you remember, some of us remember years ago in the cowboy movies, when a cowboy got shot or hit by an arrow, he would guggle a, a whole bunch of alcohol before they pulled the arrow out of his shoulder or cut into his shoulder with a knife to pull out the bullet. Yes, alcohol is an anesthetic, but are there better anesthetics that get the job done much better? Absolutely and without getting drunk and without affecting the cardiovascular, getting your, you know, your, uh, your heart rate up, which alcohol does. So again, in each of these cases, we need research to know what the risks are and what the rewards are. Cocaine and heroin, it, 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 the side effects or the negative effects far outweigh the benefits in terms of medicinal use. We found something called lidocaine instead of cocaine. The lidocaine is used in dental surgery. A couple of shots of that in the gums, and the dentist can work on you, and you don't feel much pain at all. That also, Novocaine is, was another one that's been used for dental surgery. But cocaine itself uh, has too much risk involved. 
and again, you, the people get connected to it, start using it over and over. That's not the case with Novocaine and Lidocaine, and then they get into trouble. Uh, and lifestyle changes come from heroin and cocaine. With regard to the psychedelic medicines, we don't, we don't have enough information. I'm going to keep saying that throughout this whole program because we need research. That's the flag that I'm flying under. We need research. We've got to get the scientists going to teach us how can we use these, if we should use these, what are the benefits, what are the risks, where is it appropriate, where is it inappropriate. We can't know that when our government continues to suppress. Our government has to be willing to open up and allow the scientists to do their work. Love this episode? You can receive the transcript for free by simply texting Entheonation, that's E-N-T-H-E-O-N-A-T-I-O-N, to the number 44222. All you need to do is to reply to the SMS message with your best email address, and we'll send you the transcript and our guide to navigating visionary states for free as a VIP citizen of Entheonation. Why do you think that some psychedelics are so effective in the treatment of drug addiction? So I uh, spent uh, a month living on the island of Koh Phangan, Thailand, where I met a couple of guys who have an Ibogaine treatment center. And people fly out there and they administer Ibogaine to their clients for a period of four days where they're just basically, you know, looked after. And it seems to be highly effective in getting folks off of heroin and cocaine and, you know, uh, and, and alcohol. And so these two guys had a, a pretty intense party lifestyle and their uh, Ibogaine use helped them clean up and become super healthy. And so now they're helping other people clean clean up too. So uh, since you work uh, in this area, I'm curious to know, like, what is it about these visionary medicines? I don't know that Ibogaine is a cure for any drug addiction because, again, just as I'm not willing to say that these drugs are dangerous, I'm not willing to say that Ibogaine is a cure for drug addiction. I need to see research. I need mm. to see follow-up. I need to see some double-blind. I, I need to hear more like what Dr. Roland Griffiths taught us at Johns Hopkins recently. He administered, under certain conditions, psilocybin mushrooms. He then interviewed the person after the administration, they then followed the person up for an entire year, and then they retested the person on various scales. What they found was, as a result of one administration of the psilocybin mushrooms, there was a decrease in depression that lasted a year. Scientific research. However, if they had let that person go out post-administration, uh, by one week, and one week later, their depression scale indicated much less depression, and then they let them go, and they said, see, it works, that wouldn't have had a lot of meaning to me, mm. because it's a week later, and all kinds of things happen. Sometimes a placebo can work for a week, but for a whole year, that's another whole story. There we had some real science. So until we see that with Ibogaine, I know what you're talking about, I've interviewed people as well, uh, until we see that, uh, I, I can only raise questions and say, knock, knock, more research needed, please. Uh, I'm not naysaying, I'm not pro-saying, I'm saying more, more research needed. One more uh, a, a factor, though, that is involved in the treatment of drug addiction. Drug addiction, different from many other illnesses, brings with it a whole series of behaviors that other illnesses do not bring. For example, if a person has pneumonia or even cancer, that does not turn them into lying, cheating, and stealing. They are living their lives and they have pneumonia or they have cancer or they have a liver disease. But drug addiction is famous for changing people's behavior into, and people become honest. In, in fact, there's a headline in the New York Times, I think in the 1890s, it says, Cocaine turns honest men into liars and thieves. Why is that? It's because the alteration of the mind is such with these particular drugs 
and because of the public's view of these particular drugs, that people are ashamed of the use, therefore they lie about the use. Then once you start lying about one thing, you start lying about other things because lying is a slippery slope, and then they become liars. If the drugs are difficult to get or very expensive to get, as illicit drugs are, because you're buying them on the black market, not at the local pharmacy, many people, after they get hooked on these drugs, can't afford it. Then they turn to stealing in order to get their drug. I don't know that we're going to find a medicine that's going to correct the behavior of lying or stealing or cheating. I think that's behavioral uh, uh, manifestations that need to be treated and cured in a psychotherapeutic uh, situation. That need, that's a skill training over time. The person has to acknowledge what they're doing, they've got to take a look at what they're doing, and they've got to start making changes in what they're doing. And this, take, this is, a, this is a, a difficult situation, particularly when a person has a very long history. If a person started, as many of my patients have, using various drugs in their late teens and they come in for treatment in their late 30s, they have been setting up lifestyle habits for 20 years. And if they come in in their 40s for 30 years, taking a medicine and getting a great deal of insight may give the person a break in the use of the particular drug, but it won't necessarily give them the insight and the skill set to be able to stop their lifestyle changes, such as lying, for example. That's going to take more time. And it's all connected. The lying and the stealing and the use are connected because when people lie and then if they're not using, they realize they're lying their self-concept starts to go down. And when a person who's been involved with drugs takes a big hit to their self-concept, one of the things they do to feel better is go after their drugs again. And so that's a sad aspect of that. And that takes therapy. That takes a lot of therapy to work on. Again, the length of the time. You get somebody who's just been using the drug and gotten in trouble for a year or two, that's not the same as a person who's been using for 20 or 30 years. Same for alcohol, by the way. Mm-hmm. Same for alcohol. So what about um, on the flip side where people are happy and productive and, uh, uh, and interested in exploring psychedelics? What, what are the potential benefits and side effects of, you know, functioning, healthy, you know, fairly normal people who are looking for those experiences for life enhancement? Well, we, we, have, we have anecdotal information from Nobel Prize winners, such as Francis Crick, for example, who tells us that he envisioned the double helix, which won him the Nobel Prize, while he was under the influence of LSD. So Carl Sagan's widow announced to the public that a lot of Carl Sagan's research was done under the influence of LSD. And there was another Nobel Prize winner as well who told us this. This tells us, and Albert Hoffman, of course, the discoverer of LSD, who died recently at age 102, bless his heart, also talked about the scientific uh, and, and explorations that he was able to do under the influence. So we have anecdotal information that discoveries can be made under the influence of LSD in one's mind without even going to the laboratory. Dr. James Fadiman author of the Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, told me on the radio just today about an architect that he interviewed who, under the influence of LSD, was able to envision an entire building in his mind, every detail of it, under the influence of LSD. And then he was able to take that information and then put it out on paper as a, as a completed a completed. Um, a piece of architecture. That's quite a phenomenal situation. Another one of Jim Fadiman's uh, uh, patients was a physicist who was able to make electrical connections in a piece of technology all envisioned in his mind. 
and he would take each of the wires and move them around in his mind and envision them until he got all the connections correct and then he put it on paper and actually manifested the piece of technology. So this is very exciting in terms of the possibility of this particular substance, LSD, being used for creativity. There are also those who, who use uh, LSD for what's called spiritual enhancement, a sense of getting in touch with that which is greater than all of us. You mentioned earlier that you might be asking me about uh, about other beings or whether there are other other universes, other other uh, ways of, of life. And people under the influence of LSD talk about getting in touch with other beings, being able to see us as they think we really are, us human beings, light beings, biochemical, electrical light beings, where the molecules are stuck together in such a way as to create what we call form, our bodies. And they've been able to see this under LSD. And there's a, uh, an artist that you probably know, Alex Gray, who actually, uh, who actually does paintings of light beings, which he has envisioned under the influence of LSD. So that's another possibility. Again, an area that we can learn a great deal more about. And then, of course, there's the potential psychotherapeutic use of LSD. I mentioned before early work on alcoholism, and we have yet, yet to, to know uh, what other benefits uh, that this particular substance might have. Uh, you mentioned Ibogaine before. Ibogaine people are experimenting with in the use of drug addiction. And of course, ayahuasca uh, is, uh, is something that, uh, that some people, we got a little bit of research from Dr. Dennis McKenna uh, and Steve, Dr. Steve Beyer, uh, talking to the plants was his book, um, who have done some research on this, but we have to find out a lot more. We know, as, as you know from your travels in South America, that it's been used by uh, ayahuascaros in treatment for perhaps hundreds of years. But uh, we don't have uh, that kind of research available yet. The very fact that you have this program, the very fact that we're talking this way, is evidence that a new era is unfolding. A new era, because you would not have had this program 10 or 20 or 30 years ago, uh, but you're having it now. Because a new era is unfolding because word is getting out. It's getting out from South America. It's getting out from the few researchers here in the United States who have had the privilege from the government of doing this research. It's getting out to the public. As I said before, 23 million people, 23 million adults, on, uh, according to the government, have, have uh, experienced LSD. That's a very large number. We have absolutely no way of knowing how many people have experienced MDMA, but it's, it's, in, the, it's in the many millions, so we do know that. So, um, in your personal experience, what was the most far-out visionary experience you've had? Well, as I said, when, uh, when LSD was still uh, legal and I took LSD, I had a, a, a very profound uh, um, vision of the entire uh, human species on the planet uh, being interconnected electrically as though uh, the way I envisioned it, it was sort of a electrical hairnet. If you can see a hairnet around the planet, and the hairnet is consisting of, of, of the billions of people all connected. And it was that time that I had a realization that all of us humans are connected to each other, and the degree to which we feel each other varies. Obviously, when we're in very close proximity with each other, we feel each other much more profoundly. We don't know how much we feel each other when we're at distance. But if you look at the research of Rupert Sheldrake on morphic resonance, where he demonstrates how birds in England are communicating with birds on the European continent, when he does his, showed in his experiments how dogs can sense when their masters are coming home in a car, and he's done experiments where he has the masters coming home in a car, he has other people coming home in a car, he's, I think he's got an empty car coming down the driveway, and dogs can tell from miles away when their masters are coming back. He calls that morphic resonance. There's a, there's a feeling that the dogs have, and, and it's conducted through the airwaves of an electromagnetic uh, a contact 
if dogs can have that, there's, I, I think there's reason to say that we do as well, but we're not in touch with that part of ourselves. I had that realization under the influence of LSD, and I, and I have warmed to it and enjoyed it uh, ever since. Uh, um, another time, a, uh, uh, in, a, in a medical situation, in an experiment where I was a subject, I, um, I took ketamine uh, intravenously, uh, and the, um, the, uh, the doctor who injected me with it was a, uh, was an, uh, a research person. And under the influence of that, I, I saw in my consciousness a pink Mobius strip of souls. And I had the feeling as I was looking at it that when we leave this way of life, when we leave these bodies, the energy of who we are, the spirit, if you will, of who we are, joins that great Mobius strip of souls that travels through the universe. And then I saw how sprinkles of that Mobius strip start sprinkling down almost like snowflakes and then they pull together and then they form and that's how other human beings come in because these little sprinkles form things that connect to sperm and eggs that create human beings and so that was a very profound experience and uh, both of those experiences um, really um, opened me up to possibilities. I'm not in any way claiming that these things are facts. I'm not claiming that they really occur. I'm claiming that there are possibilities as a result of these great experiences, and it's the possibilities that are very exciting. Just as I don't know for sure that there really are an infinite number of universes, the way uh, Stephen Hawking claims to know, but I'm open to believing that there are infinite number of universes definitely and i'm even open to believing that there are so many universes out there that everything that we can possibly imagine is all going on at the same time i can i can dig that yeah <laughs> so i'm curious to know since i've had this conversation with uh, uh people hailing from the more traditional plant medicine world um have you ever had a sense with um with anything made in a lab like lsd or mdma or ketamine that there is a guiding teacher um, associated with those um, with those uh, medicines uh, in the same way that you know one uh, experiences you know the mushroom teacher or the um, ayahuasca teacher or the peyote or San Pedro teachers. I understand the question. I really can't relate to it. I, I know that the experiences that I've been fortunate enough to have, both because I'm old enough to have taken these medicines when they were legal and I've been able to be a subject in experiments, and so I've, I've uh, uh, experienced a wide variety of these medicines, and I certainly am aware of the fact that each of them has a different effect. I believe that in terms of the teaching, a great deal of the teaching, at least that I have experienced, is mostly contributed to by my intention, before the experience, what I was looking for, what I hoped to learn, had a lot to do with it, and what the setting was at the time that I took it, the, the environment around me, and the sounds as well of the environment, very important. So intention and setting, for me, are the more critical than whether the, each of the medicines has its own agenda. Though I certainly, as I'm saying, understand and experience that these medicines each have a different effect. I don't have a sense of them having an agenda in that regard. I think the agenda is ours. Mm, interesting. Wow. So um, my last question for you, um, how have uh, uh, psychedelic medicines and visionary experiences connected um, you with your purpose, true calling and enhanced your life? Well, as I said, when you asked me the question about my personal experiences, that, that experience that I related to you about connecting, about how we're all connected on the planet, that, that was a very profound experience. 
because I think prior to that, I related to us more as separate people. And there's a great deal of difference between walking around in the world feeling a separateness and feeling a connectedness. And so that, that was a profound experience, and which I've, I've been able to enjoy and benefit from for my, for my entire life. That once that happened, Lorna, there was no longer a they. And, and when that happened, it, we, it, it became all of us. It's a we, and there is no they. So that no matter how, no matter how different I may feel from another person, or no matter how different my intellectual position may be, or no matter how different my politics may be, and they can be very different, I'm always aware of the fact that that other is part of me and I'm part of them. And that therefore, we have to figure out a way within our differences to become a whole rather than two separates where one wins and the other loses. That, that is the beginning, for me, was the beginning of what you might call cooperative or collaborative politics, cooperative or collaborative lifestyle rather than divisive lifestyle. That was the beginning of addition and multiplication rather than division and subtraction as human beings. Wow, thank you so much for sharing that. That's really profound. I really appreciate your story and your insights and all the information you've shared with us. Richard, how can our audience best stay in touch with you? Uh, they could uh, either look up my website, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org, or email me directly, drrichardlmiller at gmail.com. All right, thank you so much, and you have a beautiful evening. Well, thank you, Lana. It's really been a lot of fun uh, being interviewed by you. You did a great job. <laughs> this is fun. I love it. It's great. <laughs> well, that's part of what's so much fun being with you, because it's obvious you're having a good time and you're getting a lot of good information out to the public. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Entheo Nation. We've included links to any people, organizations, and resources mentioned, including that really awesome picture of your brain on LSD, in the show notes at entheonation.com slash two. I also encourage you to get on our mailing list so that you never miss an episode and get all the goodies that we reserve just for our VIP members. Simply text ENTHEONATION, that's E-N-T-H-E-O-N-A-T-I-O-N, to the number 44222 and reply with your best email to get onto our mailing list. Now, we're going to end with this lovely track from one of my favorite artists, The Human Experience. This track is called La Selva Armonia, and it's from the album Harmonic Transformation. Enjoy.
Thank you.